Hi everyone, and welcome to Play Crush. It's Joe Murphy here. Today we have a living legend on the show, the incomparable Emma Rice. It's impossible to imagine a British theatrical landscape without Emma. Her prodigious career includes so many highlights and accolades. Emma is the artistic director of Wise Children, where her work includes Wise Children at the Old Vic and on UK tour, Mallory Towers, Romantics Anonymous, UK tour. As the artistic director of Shakespeare's Globe, she did Romantics Anonymous for the first time. She did Twelfth Night, A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Little Match Girl and Other Happier Tales. As joint artistic director of Knee High, she did so many shows that beguiled so many audiences around the country and across the world. Some of the highlights include The Flying Lovers of Vibetsk, Tristan and Isolde, The Wild Bride and The Red Shoes. Some of her other work includes A Matter of Life and Death at the National Theatre, Rapunzel at Battersea Arts Centre and Brief Encounter on the West End. Emma received the Outstanding Contribution to British Theatre Award at the 2019 UK Theatre Awards. That is just the tip of the iceberg of an extraordinary career. Emma is also the most joyous, mischievous and insightful conversationalist and recording this episode was a complete joy. Emma's play crush was A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. On a midsummer's night, four young lovers find themselves wrapped in the dreamlike arms of an enchanted forest where sprites lurk and fairies rule. While a feuding fairy king and queen are at war, their paths are crossed by Bottom and Quince and their friends, presenting a play within a play. Chief mischief maker Puck is on hand to ensure that the course of true love is anything but smooth, and games of fantasy, love and dreams ensue in Shakespeare's most beguiling comedy. To me, this feels like a play written for Emma Rice to direct. Though interestingly, she has some issues with it that she had to overcome when she came to actually putting the play on. And it's really fascinating to hear Emma talk about that in the episode. Thank you again to everyone listening to the podcast and supporting Sherman Theatre and the Old Vic. We can't tell you how much it means to us. And now, without further ado, here is Emma Rice with A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. Hello, Emma. How's it going? Hello. Um, it's going fine. I'm in Somerset and it's very cold and very wet and very windy. <laughs> yeah, just the summer we were expecting after all yeah. that lockdown. <laughs> Balmy is not the world you would use to describe the world. <laughs> oh, no, no. I'm, I'm sat in, in Wales. Just, I mean, it's sheets of rain just pouring <laughs> down outside. It's unbelievable. Um, but apparently got a heat wave coming for June. So I am looking forward to that. <laughs> Uh, I mean, we all might be back at work and back in <laughs> yeah exactly I'll briefly see the sun as I run <laughs> into the theatre um, and how have you been how's 2021 been for you so far oh it's been tough hasn't it 2021 I think I've found it like yeah. many people tougher than the previous year there was a there was a drama about the first lockdowns and mm. uh, and a surprise so this year's been tough but it's been winter as well hasn't it so yeah, I mean, I, I can't complain. I'm luckier than most, but yeah, I can't wait for it to be over. I can't wait. And it does seem like we've got some green shoots, doesn't it? It feels like things are moving a bit. It really, really does. And I mean, I'm sort of like like many of us, I'm sort of institutionalised to to not believe what I hear. So I sort of sometimes, <laughs> like, oh, this is actually happening. I have to do the work. But I'm sort of waiting for somebody to knock on the door and say, oh, it's all change again. But no, the shoots are there and 
and it's thrilling. And if it all happens, I'm going to have a fantastic rest of the year. So, you know, I'm just touching everything that is wood. Yes, absolutely. At all times, holding the wood as key. Um, And I mean, it's amazing with Wise Children. I felt like the company, obviously led by yourself, had a really innovative response to the crisis that we've been through in these last uh, 12, 14 months. And I felt like it really invested in people and artists and development opportunities um, and access opportunities. And I guess I'd just love to just hear a bit about what was that philosophy for you? What drove those decisions? What, 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 what did you guys think when that happened and how did you find that response as a company? Oh, well, thank you for, for a start. Um, I think, I think we have been amazing, but I, I really can't take too much of the credit. I think <laughs> I think I think the major thing is we're a small young company and that meant we were quite light on our feet. Mm-hmm. And um and yeah, we, we turned very quickly. And I mean my my without getting too heavy too early, my dad was very ill at the beginning of lockdown and I was nursing him before he died. Oh, oh God, I'm, I'm so I, sorry. Well, no, Thank, thank you. Um, but it was magic as well because you know I'd been I'd been terrified that I maybe wouldn't be available to look after him. And then lockdown happened, and it honestly felt like a gift. It felt like in my busy, mm. you know, five decades, suddenly sort of the gods had said it's okay, you can stop and you can be where you need to be. You know, so yeah. so that it was magic. But uh, um, I carried on working, but remotely, and my team were basically saying, Emma what if we did live broadcasts? What if we did podcasts? What if we do this? And I would just, and I'm really the only thing that I can claim is that I said, yes, I just went, yeah. <laughs> yes. And in fact, when um, my amazing team, Poppy Keeling, my executive producer and Simon Baker, our technical director, um, started exploring live broadcast. I mean, in the end, I honestly said, let's do it until we can't. Let's just keep knocking down the barriers. And we did find ourselves I mean, we always laugh that we're like kids at the back of the school bus, you know, we're, we're a tiny <laughs> company that's still quite scrappy and, uh, you know, sort of on the outskirts of things. But we found ourselves strangely like at the front of the industry saying we've learned yeah. how to do this. We've learned how to do it without big trucks with blokes and tool belts telling us <laughs> what to do, you know. And that was, you know, that was the thrilling thing is that we trained up from within the company. We didn't bring in external companies. We didn't bring in external teams, which kept us safe, but also mm. kept the philosophy really embedded in everything we did. So every bit mm. of digital was came through me and came through the company and the actors and every camera was operated by one of our stage managers or our participation producer you know so we we managed to give employment keep our family close and safe and yeah sort of found ourselves trailblazing which was thrilling but as I say I just have to thank and credit my team (laughs) I mean that's amazing it is interesting because obviously as we all started to move towards digital and I'd ring around to be like okay guys we're starting to what's the thing everyone goes ring wise children (laughs) ring wise children (laughs) ask them ask them they've done it all Simon Baker knows everything ring them up um so it's amazing it is Simon Baker that just got me onto Chrome to do this recording. So he does know everything. <laughs> <laughs> and he's I mean, still, he, is, he is the man behind the curtains. He is the Wizard of Oz. So, yeah. yeah, I feel like a man who can understand the vagaries of Chrome is a true technical <laughs> master, for sure. Uh, really for is. sure. Uh, that's, uh, what, I mean, what a great response to the year. And, and I feel like there's a philosophy there about um, keep doing it until you can't that slightly to me speaks of your career and creativity that 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 philosophy seems to be a bit of a pattern um i'm just going to keep doing this thing until somebody says i can't do it um and that seems to open up loads of doorways well that's making me smile i mean i think 
I feel like um, I once had a very good bit of advice, which was actually in my mid-career when I'd had some terrible reviews. And a very wonderful person said to me, I, I was wondering whether I could keep going, and and somebody said to me, "Are you going to keep? Are you going to keep directing?" I said, "Of course, I'm going to keep directing." And they said, "Well, just get on with it then." And I thought, <laughs> well, "It's true, actually. Until the answer is no, I'm not going to carry on. You you just pick yourself up and go for it." But but you know, the other thing when I look back further in my life is I. I'm I'm largely guided by sort of compulsion to do things. There's very little choice involved and certainly <laughs> no intellect. You know, nine times out of ten, I don't choose to do what I do. I just think, ah, you know, I'm just going <laughs> to... Sort of weird possession takes me and I and I, I follow whatever that is, that instinct, and then I have to pick up the pieces after. But, you know, I don't feel that there's much choice or control going on. <laughs> I like that. It's sort of pure intuition, um, which sounds <laughs> like it could be utterly chaos. Yeah, it gets me into a huge amount of trouble. But, you know, you know, here I am and, you know, my life's been pretty vivid and marvellous. So, Oh, my God. Yeah, to say the least, to say the least. Um, well, I mean, so where did this start for you? Like, did this start with a compulsion when you were younger or towards the arts, towards performance, towards directing? I mean, like, how how did it kind of start this this, this theatre world for you? Well, I was not a f- focused child. I'm not a focused adult, actually. Uh, I was I was very sort of dreamy. I was a second child, so nobody took any notice of me anyway. Um, and I, not in a million years would I have even known there was such a thing as a director, let alone direct, think of becoming one myself. But I wanted to perform. I did ballet, which was marvellous because I was chubby and short and untalented, but I loved it. Um, um, and I, I thought I would act. And... I didn't do it at school because I went to a very, very rough comprehensive, which was just terrifying for five years. So I thought, well, you know, life is is frightening enough without pretending to be an actor or trying to be an actor. So I didn't attempt drama at school, but I did go to FE, sixth form college, um, which was amazing and and life-changing. And, you know, I met Friends for Life. Um, We had a sort of knackered old drama studio where we'd make a play a week, which you'd either write or light or do the sound or perform. And we lived for it. We absolutely lived for it. And that was um, and that really is what I was like as a child. I dressed up a lot. I used to make up dances in my bedroom a lot. And my parents (laughs) expected very little of me. (laughs) (laughs) That seems not a bad career to go into, if that's the case. You know, you know, there's. You can have to stab at acting, can't you? Yeah, very true, very true. And that's, I, I mean, I love the idea of a play a week. Did you just do that for like two years throughout sixth form? Yeah, we did. And, oh, and it wasn't amazing. part of any exam at all. It was just this weird course that we did. Uh, yeah, and it was it was phenomenal. And of course, it was in the 80s. So we were sort of splicing uh, Revox tape. You know, it was really old school. <laughs> but, but what's interesting is when you look back at... Um, my time with knee high and indeed wise children there is a bit of make do and mend about it it's in my dna you know mm. we can do this guys if we've got a little bit of if we've got a toilet roll tube and some gaffer tape we can probably make something happen and that, you know that that has gone through to the digital broadcasting you know it's not far off just with some slightly fancier toilet roll tubes <laughs> Very true, very true. In in a way, you're still in your sixth form, just making a play a week and doing what you can. Well, and you know, I'll be there for the rest of my life if I could be. It's my happy place, you know, being with great friends, having a laugh and seeing what you can make together. It's it's 
what I do it for. And if it gets too distant from that, I, I check myself and think, what am I doing wrong? Why aren't I messing about mm. with my mates again? <laughs> so that's interesting. So that, 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 that process of creation for you, would you say, is almost more important than the thing that comes out the other end? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, don't get me wrong. Of course I want to make hit shows and wouldn't it be amazing to make loads of money? But there's no point in thinking about it. You know, it just doesn't, what, wanting it doesn't make it happen. And, you know, the one thing I've learned is I am who I am. I, I've, I've got a slightly sort of left-handed view of life. You know, you just have to follow your instincts and your passions and the people that get you and the people that you get, you know, it, I find it really simple, actually, the chemistry. Um, and chemistry is a good word. You know, I do think I think it's like a chemistry set. You just have to keep mixing different ingredients in delicious, delightful ways and see. what happens. <laughs> That's so good. I, I love that because I feel like um, uh, I don't know, maybe this is a misrepresentation or misinterpretation, but I feel like the industry gets more and more product focused and more and more obsessed with the sort of um, outward facing bit of it all. Um, so it feels really refreshing to hear that actually the, the creation and the process is the awesome bit. That's the bit you've got. To, and you can't necessarily control what happens after that. No, you can't. You have to, you, um, oh, I could talk for hours about this. You have to set up uh, a situation in which you've got a chance of success, but you can't prescribe it. Otherwise, we'd all be making hit shows all the time. You know, it really <laughs> isn't a science. You you have to find something that you that matters to you and and keep folding in ingredients that make it matter more and more and just hope you know just hope that it that it works. But you know I don't I actually rarely think about product. I think a lot about about myself. I, I think when I'm in rehearsals, I think, am I bored? Do I understand? Do I believe? What don't I understand? And then I sort of hope that when that opens out to a broader audience that they will be feeling similar things to me because ultimately I think we're all pretty similar. So I, I, I keep it very simple. And yeah, if, if I get bored in rehearsals, I'd say let's put a song in or a dance in, which is my answer to most things in life. Yeah, I feel like that that's the solution to a lot of things. Just get a good I, dance in there. I think it's true. I really do. <laughs> I totally agree. And is that um that that sort of um, faith, confidence, uh, belief, um, investment in your own sort of experience and how that brought out to audience experience. Is that something you've had from the beginning or is that something that, you, you know, that sense of self you've come to over the, the period of your career? Hmm. Gosh, I'm just wondering how, to, um, I wonder what the truthful answer to that is. I mean, I was as... It's happened slowly, I think. I think I do have a surprising confidence, um, which is not arrogance. And I honestly think I, I had a lovely childhood. You know, I had two fantastic parents that that gave me the, the sort of the gift that I wish for everybody, which is, you know, I felt loved and safe and unjudged. And I think that's been my superpower, really. Mm. Um, but I was as nervous and fearful as a young woman as the next person and certainly did not feel special and certainly did not realize what I had to say you know as I say it revealed itself slowly to me and revealed it to the people around me because in fact it was other people that said to me Emma you're a director um <laughs> it, it wasn't me they just noticed that I was getting so bossy by that point and uh, calling <laughs> rehearsals you know I was in shows and calling rehearsals when we were out on tour you know uh, which so the clues were there but it was not me that was pushing them 
so I'm ambitious for the work, but I don't think I've ever been ambitious for myself. So the, the confidence that you're talking about is an unusual one. I think it's it's a it's an internal one, not a external industry one. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it also feels slightly like the holy grail, right? <laughs> to get that 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 solid sense of self. Um, it feels really important because the vagaries of everything else just feel so uncontrollable and chaotic. If you can yeah. find that center, it feels really yeah. amazing. And of course I get knocked and of course I get sad. And of course I get, you know, confused. All of that happens all the time, but I do think on some level, I, I know how to deal with it, which is to try and calm down the noise and listen to myself again. And, and it doesn't matter whether it's successful or not. It just means that it will be the right thing for me at that moment. And that means I've got a fighting chance you know it's 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 my sort of crazy road to the success on my own terms i think yeah amazing amazing okay so you're in sixth form you're doing play a play a week um on a shoestring uh how how did that turn into like um you know mega successful definer of like british theater how what's the (laughs) what's the bridges between those things I love that. And that's, yeah. oh, it's never what you feel like, is it? So I went to drive. Uh, no, yeah, it'd be weird to define yourself as that, probably. <laughs> but, you know. I know, I'm sat here shivering in my... Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, so the, 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 the stepping stones were, I went to drama school and uh, went to the Guildhall and trained as an Lovely. actor. And then I didn't Great. really get any work, is the reality. So <laughs> I was incredibly average, you know, incredibly average. I didn't have a lovely voice. I didn't have a great face. You know, I mean, nothing was, you know, nothing was quite right. So I didn't work to start with. And then I managed to get my first job with a theatre company in Devon called Theatre Alibi. And I got on the train rather sorry for myself. It was not what I wanted to do to tell stories to (laughs) primary to children in primary schools. So it was my first real job. And um, as I say, I just thought it was something that would, you know, get me get me working. But I loved it. I loved meeting the company. They remained friends for life. Um, they'd all been to Exeter drama department. So they were much more intellectual about theatre. They introduced me to, to world theatre. You know, I started, I, I started being aware of Pina Bausch and Cantor and Robert Wilson, you know, so my world was being sort of blown apart by a sort of different set of people and then telling stories to children. I found it very hard to learn because it's a very different skill because you have to be yourself. You're not pretending to be somebody else like a, an actor's mm. training tells you to do you you say I'm, I'm me and now I'm going to transform into somebody else and 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 ignite your imagination and I loved it and I was fascinated by it and I think you can see the building blocks of that storytelling work all the way through through every piece of work I ever make um, is that primarily I'm a storyteller and my the, my audience may not all be seven anymore they might be up to 70 but the principles are the same what do you need to know why are you telling the story how can we tell the story what's the lens of the story so that was how that started and then um how can I fast forward we got a grant as a company to go and train with the Garganica Theatre Association in Poland so I went out and they asked me to stay out as a performer and that was where I was cracked open I learned to sing I I moved in a different way um, it was very intense, very physical, very nonverbal. And really, it took me a while, but I was changed. There was no way that I could come back into the industry after that experience. I had mm. to find a way of, of finding work that I felt mattered as much as it had mattered in Poland, but in my own culture. 
So there, there followed sort of some interesting years. I was choreographing a bit. I worked with Katie Mitchell a lot. Um, and then somebody said, you should, you should know about knee high. And I met knee high and the rest is history. I stayed for <laughs> four years. And that was in many ways, I said, that was where I found my, my happy Poland. You know, it was as intense, <laughs> as wild, as visceral, as primal, as elemental, but we had such a ball. We, you know, it was, you know, we had such a ball. So that's why I stayed. God, amazing. And did you find, was it also, could you, could you, could you employ all of those different techniques, ideas, creativity? Like, did it feel like it not only personally a place for you to belong, but also did it stretch that creativity? Did it let you put those kind of ideas into practice and push and pull them and find your own view? And, you know, and that's what, you know, my, my, to, I've got several people that have helped me a lot, but you know, I have to do a shout out to the late Bill Mitchell and Mike Shepherd, who were running Knee High when I joined Knee High. Two amazing artists who mm. were so generous with hindsight. They they saw what I had to offer and they enabled it. So I was very much encouraged to bring what I had to, you know, what I had to Knee High. So I was doing my Polish training and choreographing and then I did some assistant directing and then it, it was them sort of several shows in that just said Emma just what why don't you direct a show and I can remember saying no 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 I'm fine I just like, it was like helping from the sidelines and they said Emma what if you were to direct a show what would it be and I said well the red shoes and I swear <laughs> I had never thought of it before then I, I, I don't even remember reading it I don't remember it just came out of my, my mouth and <laughs> And, you know, if only I could remain that instinctive, you know, to this right yeah. old age. But, you know, <laughs> it really was them saying do it and, uh, and, and really cheering me along. And, and, and then I also have to say that they taught me because they were, of course, some of the best clowns in the country. And they, mm. I brought them the sort of the Polish seriousness and they brought me my clown and my, and my humour. And I think that that was where the sort of the amazing chemistry again happened, you know, me whipping them into shape and them saying, come on, find the silly, find the, find the other <laughs> discipline, you know, and that's where, that's where the magic happened, I think. And is it, the, is, is it those two forces, do you think, that drive your work, the sort of clown that plays for keeps, as it were, that sort of <laughs> edge that exists beneath the silliness? Oh, I've never heard that phrase, but yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm just a great believer that life's all things as people are all Mm. things. And, you know, um, when have you ever been to a funeral where you haven't got the giggles at some point? (laughs) You know, the the two emotions sit very, very close to each other. You know, and I do think if you can make an audience laugh, you will make them cry because what what, what you're doing is is creating something recognisable, something... A, a dreadful situation that you get into trouble with or goes wrong, you know, and you can, and you know, the, the world suddenly falls apart. So, so I, I, I see comedy and tragedy sitting so close to each other. And that's why I, um, I, I sort of don't stint either of them. You know, my work is very emotional and I like it to be incredibly funny as well. Cause I think mm. they're such strong bedfellows and bedfellows in my life. You know, I find life very funny and incredibly, um, you know, moving. I'm a, I'm always in tears. Constant <laughs> <laughs> state of being. So you know, <laughs> can't move for crying. She can't move for crying. You ask any of my actors, they'll say, "Oh, she's off." <laughs> <laughs> 
what's interesting is I tend to cry at the beginning of rehearsals, not at the end. You know, I'm not crying when we're in the theatre. I, I cry in rehearsals when it's when I see it for the first time. When you when the material meets the the amazing human beings you've brought into the space and you you feel mm. it taking off, that's when I'm sort of a blub. <laughs> but I also feel that's probably when you're closest to the audience experience, right? Seeing it for the first time as opposed to the yeah. 20th time you've seen it by week four or whatever. Yeah. And 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 I often say, remember this, remember this. It's going to get complicated. Mm. You know, that's what happens. People think, oh, I'll fine tune that. I'll refine that or I'll, I'll mess it up a little bit or I'll, you know. And I always say, remember this first time, whatever just happened. I don't need to know what happened, but put it somewhere safe because yeah. something really special just happened. Yeah, that's very true. And I often find um, with those rehearsal processes that generally you're trying to just get back to the first week, but knowing what you're doing. Essentially, you're not trying to return back to that place, but knowing where you're standing. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> and so is there a moment from, is, is there a defining moment, number of moments from Knee High, from that time in your life? Is there like a show, a, a moment with an audience or something that to you was like, yeah, this this is what my Knee High experience has been for me. This is what this part of my life is about. Oh, well, you're asking me to choose between my children. You know, every <laughs> every show I made was important to me. But I suppose I've described the Red Shoes was, was the moment where I um, burst into myself. You know, I felt like I'd been... It was it was extraordinary and will be the show that's most special to me forever, really. It was so personal, mm. so raw. Um, there was only five actors in it when we made it, you know, and all of them threw themselves into this show. Mm. Uh, all of us, our sort of lives were changed by it. And and I think that was when I suddenly thought, gosh, I'm I'm not who I thought I was. You know, this this voice came out of me and surprised me more than anybody else. You know, it wasn't planned. So wow. that's a big one. Um, and then I suppose Tristan and Isolt has to be a big one. And the, uh, the 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 often told but true story is I didn't want to do Tristan and Isolt. I wasn't interested in a medieval story. And I inherited it from Bill Mitchell, who said, Emma, I don't want to do it. You do it. And I, had, and I can remember it was a four-week rehearsal process. And then we were going to perform it at Restormal Castle for four weeks. And genuinely, I thought, oh, gosh, nobody's going to see this. It doesn't matter. Um, I can't get into it. And we did a week. So ever my four weeks rehearsals, we did the first week. And my big idea is that it would be told by the Cornish Saints. So everybody dressed up, did some hilarious work on Cornish Saints. Um, I think we dressed up. I think we put somebody on stilts to play a monster and put some car mats on their shoulders. And at the end of the first week, I said, oh, well done, everybody. See you next week. And I went home and I thought, none of that is of any use to any person on the planet. There's not a single thing that happened. Didn't tell anybody. And then I just, it just came to me. What if I, well, I think I was first of all thinking of medieval knights and balaclava and, um, you know, chainmail hoods. And I thought well, that's mm. a bit like a balaclava. And I went in on Monday and I said, just for fun, everybody, just put on a balaclava, put on a cagoule. I gave them all binoculars and said, imagine you're bird spotters, but you're not spotting birds, you're looking for love. And the, those beautiful clowns, I mean, it just took off the second it happened. I mean, I, I could have sat in that room and watched them. They all created these characters instantaneously, oh, heartbreaking amazing. characters. And that was, I dumped all the work from week one. We started afresh. And that, that show has come back on and off for sort of 15 years now, um, supporting 
artists and companies and new work you know the the job that a, a successful show like that does is immeasurable yeah. and it it never has got stale every new person that comes into it brings a new layer to its meaning it's it just gets richer and deeper and funnier and more personal it's it's an absolute wonder it's a complete wonder and we made it in three weeks <laughs> once yes, I it's, it's, it's once I first week made it in three <laughs> weeks. I mean it's one of those wonders that you think like on paper just shouldn't work right you're like there's no way yeah. any of this should work and then yeah. and in that moment right sorry this is just a personal question really but in that moment where you go oh man nothing else from week one worked like did you do you freak out is it stress like how, how do you have the courage clarity whatever you want to call it to kind of go it's okay and I'm happy to, and excited to explore something new I, do, I just don't panic I haven't got it in me <laughs> I haven't I don't panic I just think well that doesn't work and again, I sort of think, what's the worst that happens? We know what the worst is, which is that you make a not very good piece of theatre, which, let's face it, everybody can survive. So yeah. I I don't panic. But, but you know, some it's not a bad thing. If you need to have an idea, have an idea. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a muscle as well as a, you know, I don't think it's a gift. I think it's a muscle. And right. at that point, when you've just wasted a week of four weeks, 25% of your rehearsals I needed to have an idea so you just need to put yourself in the space where it comes um yeah, and, and you know it does because you you know that's the thing as well is that you that work isn't wasted the the, the what what as you were looking at work that you were going to throw out it's actually really informing what it should be mm. I mean I like to think now I'm older I, I try not to waste work in rehearsals I try and do more I try and be better up front so that I don't waste people's work. Um, but, you know, everything, everything is is a gift. You know, everything is giving you information. Yeah. I always think of it making theatres like being a detective. You just have to keep your magnifying glass out and looking for clues. I think that's right. We we had Matthew Watchers was a guest on a previous series and he, he, he sometimes describes making a theatre as, you know, that guess who game? Where yes. you're like, uh, is have they got glasses? Have they got, <laughs> and it's like you're just slowly revealing like what yeah. the play is. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, that sounds very similar. And I okay. do that. I work in big layers. I work very fast and very free, and then, and then what you learn from that first layer, you go back and do it again. So I I work very loosely and very fast, and like you say that that's just it tells you what you need to know you know you, so that when you go back you make better decisions very interesting so would you like try and get through the whole play really quickly in a rehearsal process and just get it up and feel it out yes and then and then and then go back on it after that yeah because there's nothing like you you'll you'll hit a moment where you go this works and i can tell you it won't be in the first scene it, it will you know the one <laughs> is the first scene so you'll get to something in Act Two, and you suddenly went, "Now this is happening." So you need to get there fast, so that you can use that information and solve your first scene and find the way to get into it. So yeah, get it on its feet really fast, and and don't give anybody a chance to think, because thinking <laughs> does nobody any good. <laughs> That's so good because I feel like I could see like um, myself, including this young directors, you know, just kind of obsessing over the first scene and getting it absolutely perfect and staged like nobody else has ever staged it before. <laughs> and actually, yeah, it's the opposite in some ways. Just charge in, let your intuition lead, see where that takes yeah. you. 
and then yeah, and don't leave room for doubt. <laughs> don't leave room for <laughs> agonizing. Just plow through, and then everybody go, oh, that works. And you you know you can start building on <laughs> on the positives. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Um, okay, so Nehi has kind of blown you open, redefined you as a person and artist, it sounds like, and found that calling, found, found that, that shape of your work. And, and what comes next? Well, after, um, well, the globe, I suppose, is the big headline. I mean, Nehi growed, growed, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> growed. That's what it, it just felt. growed. <laughs> You know, but the, you know, it didn't stay still. You know, yeah. running a small company, there was nothing still about it. Um, so it it doesn't feel like one chapter. You know, we're constantly right. reinventing, constantly um, changing the model of work. We built the asylum. We got a producer, Paul Cruz. Um, we were working outdoors at the beginning, and then we started working indoors much more. You know, so big chapters happened with that. But I did feel that there was another big chapter in me. And probably, I was going to say egotistically, but I actually think as a as a woman, I was in my 40s, late 40s. I think I wanted a chapter that was my own. I felt like I'd been very lucky to inherit knee high um, and other people's work. And I thought it was time to lean in and say, be your yourself. Mm. And, uh, and in a sort of what we can now immediately say is a misstep. I thought that that was the case. <laughs> but you know, nothing's a misstep because it's all good information. You know, wise children wouldn't exist if I hadn't gone to the globe. And I certainly don't trash what happened to me at the globe because I absolutely loved it and loved what it did to me. I felt incredibly successful, bizarrely, you know, so it did... It was this amazing happening that was so emotional and so chaotic and fueled. And, you know, and I'd had this sort of this protected life in Cornwall that suddenly was in London and felt very exposed. So it was a crazy few years, but I, I now see it as the transition, <laughs> some mm. sort of strange thing that I had to, in order to leave knee high, which of course I, I never will leave in many ways. My heart and soul will always be there. But in, in order to step into my own shoes I had to go through that amazing process to say, okay, now we know what it is. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's really interesting because from the outside, it was just pure excitement when you got that gig, you know what I mean? And then the shows you did, it was just ramping up to such excitement levels and it felt like new a new energy and new heartbeat. And I, I've, I worked at the Globe for four or five years, probably with Dominic when he was there. So like, that building like means a huge amount to me. Um, I was just so excited, you know, by the work, by the ethos that it brought. And it felt like it was all so positive and all going so well. So then it felt really random, the sort of right-hand turn. I think on the outside, we just couldn't understand what happened. It felt random to me. It felt random <laughs> to me. Um, you know, but that, I, that, there's a learning, there's a learning curve there because I, of course I knew that not everybody liked what I was doing. But it felt like it was only a few people. And I thought, well, this mm. is just change, you know, and there's always a bit of resistance to change and it will shake down. But I didn't read the politics. I didn't read the room. And I thought I was somebody who did read rooms. So, you know, all of that was very, very shocking. And it felt like it happened incredibly quickly. Mm. And, and meanwhile, like you say, I, we were having these amazing 
we were like rock stars, you know, the actors and the shows. <laughs> no, I mean, it was, so you were having these, it was like being on drugs being in the globe on those nights. <laughs> it was amazing, you know, and it felt like the world was coming and the the yard was full of young people and they were singing, they were dancing and and everything was happening. And then suddenly it started sinking and you could not join those two narratives together. Mm. And the the books were fantastic, you know. I'm I'm a, I pride myself on being a good businesswoman, you know. And yeah, the the books were phenomenal, you know. So I none of it made sense. It, it makes more sense after time, but yeah. um, it, it's you know all of those are just lessons to learn. But um, but the simple thing was they wanted me to change the way I made work, and I as I said to you before, I don't panic, but things are very. That was very clear. That wasn't. I felt I wouldn't exist if I accepted that. So it it wasn't a, a an option for me to 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 even consider it. And I think I can't speak for them, but I think they were surprised when I said no. I think they expected yeah. job to be more important than myself, you know, and ultimately that was where that was them not reading me. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that integrity, it feels like through your life, that's been your guiding star. So to take that away, it would have just been madness, really. It, it wasn't an option. I, I didn't consider it because mm. how could I have looked my friends and collaborators in the eye? How could that would have just set me adrift? I, it wasn't I, I can't I almost can't talk about it because I didn't think about it. Yes. It, yeah, I, I, I honestly would have seen would have cut off all my limbs to have done that <laughs> and then people say but you know did the lights matter to you that much and you want to go it wasn't about lights of course it wasn't about lights <laughs> none of it was about lights and sound it's about integrity and process and people you know and 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 ultimately freedom yeah and I remember I'm probably going to misquote you so many apologies um but I remember something I read I can't remember an article or something that you talked about where you, I think it's it said something like you you'd never not be in the room where the decisions were made again mm -hmm. yeah um and I found that really interesting and really empowering um as a statement and have, have I got that roughly right yes um, you know quite, and and what would you mind just unpacking that a bit for us or what what that meant yeah I mean what it came from was I was, um, it, it all happened very, very quickly. It happened over two board meetings. So for anybody who hasn't worked for an organisation as a board, that's basically uh, one meeting happened and then three months later another did. So there was a mm -hmm. sort of a warning conversation at one board meeting and three months later they had a vote and I and about my process. And I wasn't even in the room for that vote. Right. Um, so I didn't even know it was happening. And right. Um, and there was a marvellous moment when I was told I thought I was going to be going into this meeting and I was told that it was an in-camera session. And I can remember saying, with the whole board sat there, I said, I'm very sorry, I don't know what that means. And somebody said, it's Latin, it means it's closed. And, I, and inside I was like, I wanted to say, what do you mean it's fucking Latin? How is it comprehensive in Nottingham? What, how, how? <laughs> Can this be possible? But I did leave because I'm obedient and because I wasn't on the board um, and I wasn't chief exec. And they discussed my work and and decided that I shouldn't make work the way I did. Of course, there's lots of nuance to this. Please feel free to do a podcast with one of the board members. And ask 
but that's that's what happened and um and I just thought as I say from from the the unfocused little girl who just wanted to make up dances that was the moment I grew up really which is I just thought mm. you know you've you've drifted you've you've been lucky Emma you've been surrounded by people that have supported you and understood you and wanted to understand you and you you slept walked into this mm. um and of course I was upset and of course I was angry but actually I just thought well this is not going to happen again mm. my destiny may be distant my my destiny might be smaller but I am going to be in charge of it. Yeah. And that's what I mean by I'm going to be in the room. Mm. Um, because, you know, that, that was all formal. They, they did nothing illegal and nothing, you know, it was, mm. it was perfectly acceptable governance, but not acceptable to me. Mm. And I suppose, you know, with wise children, you've achieved exactly that really a real control of your own destiny and creativity. Yeah. And that was where the name came from, which, again, I didn't think about for a second. I knew it. I knew <laughs> that I wanted to keep my innocence and um, my naivety and my instincts and keep like, that childlike um, superpower that I have to see the world simply and hopefully. But I needed to be really smart. You know, I needed mm. to now really lean in, be clever so that's where I want to be a wise child. That's where I knew, and I just knew that Angela Carter had already given me that those <laughs> words that I needed. You know, um, yeah. And how Silly have you found that? <laughs> Sorry, say that again. Silly and smart. <laughs> Silly and smart. Very good. Yeah, it's very good. I feel like you know um, a lot of your junction points and creativity. It's really interesting. Are like meeting points. You know what I mean? Again, it's the clown and uh, 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 and the Polish, and you know it's it. And you talk about chemistry a lot is really interesting. And it feels like it's actually rather than a singular vision or something, it's actually about combinations that seem to create the most exciting work for you. Always. Yeah. Always. Um, you know, my my imagination, well, it's known to me. I know what's in my mind. I, I have very little interest in in seeing that on stage. What I want to see is what happens when I share that imaginative world and when somebody else brings their um creativity to that that's when I mean I call it the thrill of surprise and you you have to work very hard to create a room physical and spiritual in which surprise can happen mm. and you need it to be a surprise in the right you need it to not be random so you also have to do a lot of work but ultimately it's all about the space within that work and what might happen and then it's seeing it celebrating it protecting it and yeah it's all about what other people bring yeah, amazing. And I mean, in a way that I feel like that aligns us quite beautifully into your play because as your play crush, you chose a Midsummer Night's Dream, which I think is all about meetings, chance meetings, wrong chemistries, right chemistries, right partnerships, wrong partnerships. You know, it seems to typify that in some ways. Oh, I love that. It is, isn't it? And it's got that sort of, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, it's magic and it's spells, you know, yeah. it's, it's things that you can't quantify. Yes, so, yeah. exactly. This is my play crush. It's, I mean, it's a great play crush. I've been waiting for someone to choose me someone like Dream. It's one of my absolute favourites. Um, and so, like, w just as a start-off question, like, wh why this play? Wh why is this risen to the top of your list? Well, I feel that it's been in my life forever. So when I 
when I was a kid, my mum and dad, they took us to, to everything. Um, the cheap seats at the concert hall, you know, listening to classical music, art galleries, we'd queue up outside and theatre. I grew up in Nottingham and um, Nottingham Playhouse was rocking in the 70s. Richard Eyre was there. And all the young hipsters, like my, you know, my parents were, we would go to theatre and it was very, very exciting. Um, but we would also go to Stratford, which was a, just over an hour's drive. And that was as for special treats. We would go to Stratford. And as I was beginning to fall in love with theatre, I've just Googled it. So it was 1981. We went. Now, this may even be wrong, but I believe it was Boxing Day. As a Christmas <laughs> present, we drove in the snow to Stratford to see A Midsummer Night's Dream. And it was Juliet Stevenson and um, all the fairies were sometimes puppets and sometimes humans. And we sat on the front row as a family. And... I was absolutely enthralled. I mean, that's all I can say is I can remember. And, and it was, it was my memory is it was a beautiful production. I loved the puppet. I, I, it was, it was beautiful, but I think being on the front row did something as well. I couldn't see any other audience. I just felt that they were doing it for me. And it was this very uninterrupted experience. And I can remember going to the loo afterwards and there was a twig underneath the door. And I can remember going, it's a fairy's foot. <laughs> and it was so, and I mean, I wasn't even a baby at this point. I think I was 13, you know, but I was so in the world of it that I sort of thought I was seeing fairy's feet. But I think I, it was definitely one of the most magical experiences. And I still like to sit on the front row mm. to this day because I feel like I can stop worrying about any other people and just be right up close to actors. And I, I sort of can't now because too many people know who I am and my silly white griff would be shown, wouldn't it? And be, and <laughs> yeah. You've got a very famous silhouette there that's quite, <laughs> quite easy to see. Um, so, so, so that was my first experience of it. And then I played Titania at drama school. Nice. With full with full on crimped hair and glitter <laughs> makeup. And um and my mentor, my dear, dear mentor who taught me drama from Nottingham and hadn't seen me. Um she taught at the FE college I told you about. And she came to see me, obviously hadn't seen me for three years, um, because I'd been at drama school and came to see me in Midsummer Night's Dream and I I pranced down the stairs to see her and she she gave me a hug and she said, Darling you look very beautiful, but you were terribly boring. <laughs> I know. And of course, my heart broke, you know. I mean, oh, I, no. I, was, I was like, how could you say that to me? I've worked for three years. And do you know what? A, she was right. And B, in that moment, I thought, I will never be boring again. And do you know what? I It's, it's still <laughs> the advice I give to everybody who asks me. Just don't be boring. And I, and and it was the best it was the best lesson it, it, it threw three years of drama school out the window so um, that was my time and then of course um, I I chose to do it at, at the Globe now actually I wasn't going to do it at the Globe because people had asked had said to Nehi why don't you do Midsummer Night's Dream for twenty years and we'd always gone no it's too obvious we're not going to do it. And when I went to the Globe, everybody said, why don't you do Midsummer Night's Dream? I said, no, it's too obvious. And in fact, I asked my friends, um, my Icelandic friends, Vesterport, to do it at first. And that didn't happen. And in the end, I thought, come on, Emma, give in to fate. <laughs> and that's when it happened. And I had to tackle my issues with it, which I do have issues with it. So I got into bed with my sort of difficult lover, Midsummer Night's Dream, and, and moulded 
the beasts into my own. (laughs) (laughs) And it was amazing. As I say, you know, whatever happened to the globe can be all be forgotten. But what happened in that theatre every night with the Midsummer Night's Dream will never be forgotten. It was intoxicating. It was amazing. And I'm so proud of it because I felt like we really, really did bring it to London in the 21st century. It was amazing. And anything but boring. Uh, like you definitely came full circle there. (laughs) And and you worked with a sort of playwright dramaturg on it. Is that right? To kind of shape the script up a bit? I did. I worked with Tanika Gupta, who I've worked with before. One of my, um, who's brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and is far more than um, (laughs) fiddling with Shakespeare. She's an amazing playwright. But one (laughs) of the things that I said as artistic director, I had a few rules that I came in to every director. And one of them was to, to edit the plays they're too long Mm. um and to do it up front so I asked everybody to either edit it themselves um or to to have money to work with a writer to edit it but what I didn't want was people going into rehearsals with three and a half hours of material with so it was it was just me saying I'm going to support you to do this but I do not want three and a half hour productions going on the globe and I had a lot on my plate at that time. So it felt really sensible to work with somebody else. And Tanika's like the writer I respect and admire most in the world. So she was fantastic and 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 really good at adaptation. She has a very light touch. So when we made the big decision to change Helena into a man, Helena's, mm. it, was, it was me and Tanika that sat down and went through every reference to see whether the play would support it. Mm. I mean, it's such an exciting and bold shift. Um, and, and, and one of those ones, when you see it, you're like, it's so obvious. You know, the best ideas are the ones you think, how would I not thought of that? Or how would I not seen that before? And did that decision, because you just mentioned there lightly that you had, you know, there are problems that you have with the play and those issues. And is that decision in response to some of those? Yes. And, and what are those? Um, I, I find the part of Helena un, unwatchable. <laughs> and I find the fact that it is, it is funny. I didn't as a young woman, of course I didn't. Um, but as an older woman, um, I could not support that being a relationship that I that I wished to succeed. Mm. You know, she literally says, I am your spaniel. You know, yeah. the more you beat me, the more I fawn on you. What is it she says? It's um it's it's agonizing, isn't it? Yeah, it and is. I thought I cannot have a woman say I will be your dog. You know, you can beat me, and I will love you, and that really, um, that really gave me problems. And no spell on the planet solved that problem for me. That right. they that I could celebrate their marriage at the end, knowing what he said to her and what she said to him. So by making that shift to it being a man, like you say, it 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 was like low hanging fruit. I cannot believe that nobody had done it before. Because, of course, what Demetrius is doing is denying the fact that he's gay. Right, yes, yes. Um, and that's why he's so aggressive. And that is why he um, right, yeah. rejects Helenus so so horrifically. And then I also believe that made me believe why Helenus hung on, which is, I know you love me. I know you are mm. gay. I know that this is something we can fight for. And... And that really gave the play something, given that we are in a world where people are put to death, where Hermia is threatened with death if if she mm-hmm. marries the wrong person. You know, we're in a world where, you know, this the you know, bad things happen to people if they don't play by the rules. So the stakes suddenly shot through yeah. the ceiling. 
and and I was fully invested in that relationship. And the globe used to go crazy when they kissed. Two men kissed <laughs> properly in a wedding scene at the end. The screams <laughs> of joy, of shock, joy, delight, and rage that would go into the London sky. I mean, that was worth every every thing that happened and mm. and was amazing and we really felt that we'd well I'd answered my big problem with it I also have a, a real problem with women being drugged and sexually assaulted yeah I mean that's <laughs> a fair that's a fair one yeah, it's a fair one isn't it and I have yeah, a problem yeah. that goes back to Oberon I, I don't feel I really um dealt with that as forcefully as I dealt with Helena but Meow Meow who played Titania really does as a performer does an amazing job of of touching on the cost of love and the what the the victimization of women as well as keeping an amazing strength and glamour so i think she just through her amazing acting powers um helped <laughs> that storyline but yeah shakespeare's got an awful lot to answer to if you ask me but those were the big issues that i had with the with the piece and is there a flip side to that are there bits of it that you love or bits of it that really sing to you that you thought yeah this is this is what will propel me through that process. This is the stuff I want to chase down. Well, well, do you know what? I think I think the relationship between Demetrius and Helenus is the thing that propelled me. Mm, the right, idea yeah. that that there was true love that had a genuine threat over it that I could I could restore. I think that really propelled me through. Mm. Um, and then I think the rest of the play actually revealed itself to me through rehearsals you know I'm not a natural Shakespearean mm-hmm. um which is I'm sure one of the reasons the globe didn't work out but it's actually one of the reasons I think I was a great person for the job you know mm. I was I was trying to find my way in you know with integrity and you know not not with education but with you know with a different lens on it mm. um and I can remember thinking I mean I always love the lovers they're great fun aren't they and I <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed, you know, I very much enjoyed that. And of course, Puck, I had my sort of muse, Katie Owen playing Puck. So lots of things and and Meow Meow playing Titania. So I had lots of my lovely, delicious, long-term um, collaborators in the room. But the thing I was most scared of was the mechanicals because, you know, you've got all these words to say. It's quite hard to make them funny when you first are on the page and you and it's quite hard to improvise around Shakespeare because ultimately there's the big job of learning it at mm. some point. Um, but th- I really learned Shakespeare taught me what was funny in that in that mm. rehearsal process. Um, you know, my I left it till last as I always do. If something's difficult, I think, well, just don't do it today, Emma. Do what you want to do today. Leave what's difficult till later. So they kept saying, Emma, are we going to rehearse the uh, play within the play? And I was like, yeah. Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> next day, Emma, are we going to do it? Yeah, maybe we think about it. And in, the, and in the end, they they really brought loads of stuff to the table, and they they sort of you know I I gave the actors some fun kits to play with, but also they just played alone. I didn't help them much, and I can remember in rehearsals thinking this might be funny, but really not being sure of it, and only in front of an audience did it really occur to me what genius the writing was mm. and that as long as the actors had done their work, I'd given them the right toolkit and then they had the audience. Oh, it was, you know, I'm back to my chemistry set. That mm. was, it was awesome. And again, you know, I can't really take credit for it. That's, 
that's, you know, just Shakespeare showing us how it's done. He's been the boss at that point. It was amazing. Yes. Although I did put in a bit of improvisation, which then all the critics um, pointed out. There was a funny bit at the end. It's when, you might know this better than me, um, is it Snug that's the man in the moon? Snug the joiner? Um yeah. Oh, I can't remember. I can't remember. I think, well, let's for the for the purposes of this, whoever they're one of the mechanicals is the man in the moon, and I decided that I wanted Nandy Bebe, who was playing that character, it was snug, um, to wear a, an astronaut suit. And then we were like, oh, that really should be on the moon, not in the moon. Um, and then everybody got chipping in about that and saying how it didn't quite make sense. And I was really like, but have you seen her in a in an astronaut suit? It's really funny. Like, I, and I'm reporting, you know, I'm like, I'm not losing that. And everybody was fiddling around. And I went, oh, why is everybody so obsessed with the text? And everybody laughed. And I said, oh, go on, Nandy, you, let's put it in the show. So we did. Oh, um, Theseus heckled. He said, it's the man on the, in the moon, not on the moon. And Nandy in this astronaut's outfit said, why is everyone so obsessed with text? Brought the house down. I think we only put it in in preview. But every review picked it up. You know, Emma Rice doesn't like text. <laughs> As if, you know, I think the critics thought that was, you know, when I sat down to do Midsummer Night's Dream, that was the one line I'd written, you know, this is yeah. the line I'm going to yeah. put into it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Last minute. But yeah, awesome, awesome. It's official. <laughs> That's hilarious. That is, but again, like, as you said so many times before, it's about chemistry, right? Like, it's not about loving text or hating text. It's about how does it interact, right? With your performers, with your yeah. audience. With your, it's all, of, how does it keep everything alive? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, I wasn't, I, I like to think that I was respectful at all times to Shakespeare. And do you know what? The text was 99% bang on, but mm. I'm, I'm, I love to be irreverent. And I think, you know, this stuff was written down a hundred years after he died. You know, it's guesswork at best anyway. I, mm-hmm. I, I think it's fine to do a bit of fiddling to make it, make it your own and make it sing. I think it's fine. <laughs> I totally agree. Again, again, a, a, another very wise thing Matthew said is like, we're not lending libraries, you know, like you're here yeah. for an intervention of some kind. And yes. just, you're not here just to kind of see the, a museum piece. And I think that's really true. And and that text is going to, you know, someone else can do it next. You know, it's, this is your interpretation oh. of it. I think that's really no exciting. Harm has been done. No harm has been done. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, deep down, do you know like what this play is about for you like underneath its plot and everything like did you do you have a sense of what this is a play about and and why that connects to you so strongly oh well I think ultimately it's romantic Mm. and I am a desperate desperate romantic so I think it does believe in love Uh um and with my fiddling I'd made it a piece that I believed did believe in love and right. love that I could believe in as well. But I also think the mechanicals are so touching. Mm. They're so touching. They work so hard. There's a simplicity about, I mean, it, it deals with class as well. The, the lovers and Theseus and Hippolyta are so rude to the mechanicals mm. and the mechanicals are so generous. It's actually, they are the beating heart of mm. the piece. And the fact that we laugh at them goes back to what we were talking about recognition is that we're we're laughing at good people really doing their best. <laughs> and 
you know, and that's ultimately what I aspire to. You know, if I cast myself, I'd be a mechanical. The truth of it is, I'm still the chubby girl at ballet. You know, <laughs> I would have loved to Hermia or Titania, but you know, I wasn't. I was terribly boring. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the girl on the moon. You know, I'm Peter Quince, really, as a <laughs> as a director. You know, I'm somewhere. In fact, I'm the love child of Quince and Bottom. <laughs> So oh, I think, you know, I think I'm a romantic and I'm romantic about, you know, ordinary people, real people of which, you know, I am one. So I love the mechanicals. I think they're what carry it through. Mm. And, you know, and a little bit of magic is a marvellous thing because, mm. you know, there's just so much in life we cannot control. And that's really what the fairies do for me. Mm. They, they give that bit of chaos. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to hear you talk about the play uh, and about all your experiences. And um, it's just thank you so much, really, for your time and for coming on and, and for chatting to us for an hour. It's, it's amazing to hear. Oh, well, I've had a ball. Thank you for listening to me. <laughs> oh, it's a complete pleasure. Um, and lastly, I just want to talk about now, we, talk, we sort of about, talked about the past, talk about the present. And, and I guess there's the future. There's this year coming up. And of course, there's the brilliant Baghdad Cafe that's coming up with Wise Children and the Old Vic. Um, it'd be great to hear a bit about that as well and, and, and that show. And I, I suppose that sort of welcome back to audiences, live audiences. I know, I can't quite believe it. I've got a big smile on my face. Um, <laughs> so at the very start of lockdown, as I said, I was pretty distracted. My team were all learning how to live broadcast. And I can remember right at the beginning, and it was all the beginning of social distancing. You know, we hadn't heard those words before, had we? Mm. And um, people started talking about outdoor theatre, which, of course, I've done so much of with Knee High. And I can remember saying to my gang, I said, I should have an idea that would work with social distancing. And then we all laughed because I can remember saying, by the time I've had an idea, got the rights to it, adapted it, this will all be over. You know, this will be over in two months. Um, Yeah, I know. Um, But the idea that I had was Baghdad Cafe, which is a film from the 80s, which I loved, always loved. I always used to say if there was, if I was ever on Desert Island Discs and you could choose a film to take with you, it would be the film that I would choose. Mm. Um, It's all about space, geographical space, emotional space, loneliness, and the gentle coming back together and the gentle solace of friendship in surprising places. And I also thought it'd be rather marvellous that you could do it site specifically, that you could set it in a cafe in a lay-by or because um, mm. it is a cafe. Um, and we went, we got the rights. I uh, Over Zoom, I met the amazing filmmakers who live in LA, um, Percy and Eleonora Adlon. And we got the rights and they gave it their blessing and I started working on it. And then um, the phone went and it was the old Vic and they said, we're we're just testing out ideas for what we might do to welcome audiences back. And I said, I've got it. I, I know what you want. <laughs> so it's not going to be open air, but I'm quite happy about that because um, the British summers <laughs> are so um, But it's got all of those elements. It's very, very, it's full of hope. It's full of melancholy. You know, it's not going to paper over any cracks, but it is going to give us hope. It's going to give us lots of emotions. And it's just the most beautiful story. It's the most beautiful, simple story. It hasn't got many words because it's a film. So it's going to be lots of dance, lots of music, lots of gentle, gentle fun. And then we're going to send people out saying it's going to be okay. (laughs) It's going to be okay, everybody. I mean, it sounds like a perfect show. Sounds absolutely perfect. Um, I think it is, apart from it. I go into rehearsals in 
two weeks time I'm terrified <laughs> I've never turned this one around so fast but what I said you know I'm a woman of instinct so bring it on bring it on absolutely well I can't wait to see yet another triumph I'm really excited and it sounds a beautiful piece uh, exactly the right time uh, so we can't wait to see that um and Emma thank you so much thanks for being on the show what a pleasure total pleasure thanks for being such a marvellous chum online (laughs) (laughs) a privilege a privilege and an honour speak to you soon yeah speak to you soon bye thanks so much for tuning in everyone if you enjoy this episode of Play Crush we would really appreciate it if you could rate review and subscribe as it helps other people find the podcast the Old Vic would like to thank principal partner Royal Bank of Canada and the T.S. Eliot Estate for their support. Sherman Theatre would like to thank the Arts Council Wales and everybody who has supported us through this difficult time.